The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate how we're changing the nature of work and how that work is changing us. Every generation has its own fears about the jobs that could go away. By the early 2030s, 38% of current jobs in the United States could be automated. Experts warn it will destroy some jobs. So far, most of the loss has been in manufacturing jobs. But But for all the anxiety, there are also new kinds of jobs emerging. So this season, we're going to talk to people who have jobs that didn't have and really couldn't have existed before. I'm starting with a job that I've always been curious about the professional influencer. Athletes and famous people have always made money by wearing certain shoes or promoting certain products on TV. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean the growing business opportunity in helping brands connect with regular-ish people with moderate followings. And when I say growing, here's what I mean. This year, brands will spend more than twice as much as they did just two years ago. Later in this episode, Caroline Fairchild will talk to a Harvard Law School grad who started a company to rep pets on Instagram. But first, I bring you this interview with Aminatu So. Amina has built her own audience, and she's turned that into a career as an influencer. This past year, she brought in $300,000. I learned so much from talking to Amina about how to do this. Like, to be this thing called an influencer, you need to develop an audience. And she talked about how she earned the attention of her audience by working for more than a decade. It did not just happen. She also explained the relationship between her work for others and her work for herself, that creative work. One pays for the other, and she works really hard to get the balance right. And she tackled the big financial questions involved in becoming your own business. Here's Amina. When I think about the things that I do that I care about, I have conversations. I have many conversations with people, and I am I'm very lucky that I get paid to be a curious person. So I want to unpack how you got there. Is there a career ladder? I mean, I failed out of the career ladder. That's really what happened is I went to college like you're supposed to go to college. I graduated in 2007 into a recession which just meant that there were no jobs. That was definitely the last graduating class at my university where some people still graduated with jobs. And I remember feeling a tiny bit of anxiety about it at the time. I had studied political science and economics and Middle Eastern studies. You know, all of this to say that I knew how to write a paper, like, overnight. I knew how to take two all-nighters and write an A paper. That's the skill that I learned in liberal arts school. I think that, like, when you're graduating to an economy that's tough and you don't have like a, you know, you're not like, I know how to cut people open or I know how to build a building. Things just start looking very weird. And so I went into the work market. It took forever to get a job. I got a job that I wasn't crazy about. I worked at the think tank. And for a long time, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I was like, yes, I want to work in policy in some way. And I started this job. And there is this realization that I, at least you should get when you're 22. If you're in college and you're listening to this and you don't know what you want to do with your life, this is actually perfect. You get into the work world and you realize that you're even dumber than you thought because our parents have told us our whole lives that we're something special. All of your peers are gassing you up and you get to an office and literally all people care about is for you to know how to make photocopies. Do people still do that now? Unclear. You need to know how to make coffee. 
my mom told me never to learn how to make coffee, so I would never be the coffee runner in an office. I was like, that's not going to happen to me. But truly, you get to the bottom of the... You're at the bottom of the pile and nobody kind of cares. So how did you how did you end up at Google? I, You know, through a series of very weird things, the think tank did not work out. I worked in marketing after that. Social media was becoming kind of a thing. And, you know, I think that the, the other thing, I'm very much a product of my time. By the time that it's 2008, 2009, people are thinking about social media as part of communications. They don't quite know what to do with it. And a very specific thing that happened to people my age is that we we were able to do a thing at work that the people who managed us did not want to learn about, but they knew was really integral to how business was going to get done. And then Google came knocking. I got recruited and I honestly was not interested in it at first because it involved moving to San Francisco. And that was not something that I cared about. So what did you go in as? I was a PMM, like doing work under the social impact group. But social impact means everything from we're giving Google Glass to, I don't know, people who are fighting rhino poachers to we're saving schools in Oakland to we're doing election work. Got it. And so, you know, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun. But there was definitely um, I think what I learned about myself is that I I don't need a ton of direction. Like I'm a I'm a self-starter, but I need very strong boundaries <laughs> around like what are we what are we actually doing here? And I think that if you're working on the self-driving car, you're working on the self-driving car. If you're working on sending the internet balloons to space, you're doing that. But again, if you're just working in this thing that's like social impact or we want to we want to influence people, or in my case, it was like we want to make elections better. And you don't have a sense from the top of what that actually means. It goes off the rails like very, very quickly. And I was also just not happy living in San Francisco. How long were you there? For three years. Three years. Gosh, the way you just described that, I thought you were going to say six months. No. But there's just that internal pressure of, I just, I have to lead by example. I have to do things. And we're we're all part of the cult of busy. You're always busy. It turns out nobody's busy. Yeah. Tell me about resigning. Resigning was fine. But I, the thing that I know is that the minute that I did, I felt better. And I had been so scared to do it because for the first time in probably in my life, I was like, oh, I actually have a very stable living situation. I have a very stable income stream. I have a job that even my dad is proud of, you know, and it's part of the golden handcuffs. It's why people it's why people don't leave. Right. I was like, there's I just personally was not happy. And that felt like it felt almost like taboo to say that, you know, to be like, oh, everything is fine, but I am personally not fulfilled. Right. And to say that as like a 29 year old, you know, 29, 30 year old, it just felt it felt very indulgent. But I, you know, the minute that I resigned, I felt better. But it brings us to the thing that I want to explore with you, which is this new type of thing you are now. I mean, you are your own business. In mm-hmm. fact, you're, you're multiple businesses, right? I mean, you- <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Turns out that the way to work by yourself is that you have to start all these companies for yourself. Um, my accountant's going to listen to this and scream. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because there is one way of being a freelancer where you're struggling, you're trying to make ends meet. You are without the umbrella of benefits that at least working at a big company is going to give you and you need to stitch those together yourself. And then there's this other version of being a freelancer in which everything you touch makes you a millionaire and you're living very well. 
here's the thing, though. That fantasy version just does not exist, right? <laughs> it's like work is work is work. You just have to decide where it's going to suck for you. <laughs> and so I know that I am not happy working in an office, for example, for many reasons, both for health reasons. It just the way that I operate, not happy doing that for mental health reasons. I need my mornings for myself that, you know, I was like the Zoloft has to kick in, the everything. Has to <laughs> like this is just who I am. And so being a freelancer for many reasons works for me. I think, too, that all of this is just wrapped into the myth of entrepreneurship. One thing that's always really important for me to talk about when I talk about my own story is the fact that I grew up actually very poor in West Africa and I watched my dad's career get better and obviously we got better opportunities through that, that my work story is like rife with privilege. The reason that I get to do what I do is because in some ways I have paid my dues, you know, not the dues of like picking up the dry cleaning, but I put in time in institutions and in offices. In fact, I would say that most of the people that hire me now are people that I have hired or people that I have worked with before or people who have seen me operate in a different kind of mindset. And I think that especially to young people, that's really important for me to say because people think that you just bound out of bed at 25 and you have this just great idea. I was like, no, I used to do the thing that you do. It sucked. I just did it for a long enough time that it's my turn now. That's just the reality of how. Right of how work happens. Right. And that's so smart to point out because in some ways it's actually not nearly as different as it might have been for our parents. Over time, you make relationships and those relationships pay dividends. And whereas 100%. 50 years ago, that might have all happened in one company over the course of your life. Now it can happen independently, but you're still relying on the relationships. Right. You're still relying on the relationships. You're relying on past work products that you have done. And you're relying on a lot of trust that you have built into, you know, both into your relationships and into the system. So I think also the fact that I had a job, like my job at Google, where I was able to save a lot of money. I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage. You know, I don't have the kinds of responsibilities that usually weigh people down. In fact, <laughs> it makes me like a wildly irresponsible person to do, you know, like if I had to give advice to, to somebody who was thinking about doing the thing that I did, like those would be the first things that I would ask them is who are you accountable to? <laughs> are you able to live for three years without like a stable income stream and still be fine? That is a question that most people in America cannot say yes to. I can say yes to that because I, you know, I, I don't have any of those things weighing me down. And I worked at a job where I made too much money doing too little. And so you, you saved during that period. So, so I, part of the ugh. equation is it's not like you quit the job and then thought about how to pay rent next week. You prepared to quit no, that job. I quit the job and I had, you know, most people will tell you to have three months of <laughs> freelance. <laughs> save, like, it's like three months of expenses. I think that advice is insane. I had over a year's worth of expenses saved and I still felt like the bottom was going to fall out from under me. And I really wish that people who started their own businesses were more honest about that. A lot of people, you know, are married to people so they can afford to take some time out of the workforce. Some people come from wealthy families and they can take some time off. Some people will fundraise, which I will tell you that venture capital is just welfare for white people. It's all of the same. It's the same thing. I was like, money is coming from somewhere and you need to know where that money is coming from. But if you don't have a full picture of why people are able to make the choices that they do, then you build in this narrative of like, oh, you know, it would be great to just blow up my life and start over. I'm not, you know. Right. 
Yeah. Sure, it works out for like five people, and we profile those people. But it, you know, most most small businesses fail, right? <laughs> like, very fast, and and most freelancers peter out. And so, I, you know, I I say all of that not to be self deprecating or to be discouraging to people. I say it because I think that it's really important for people to know the conditions that can allow one to make these kinds of choices. And so you then go into this new world Mm -hmm. and something happens between that moment and this moment where I just read in the cut that you brought home $300,000 last year and that you feel proud of that and like you should own that and talk about that. Yeah. I mean, so many things have happened, right? I think that um, there is also just this idea that I had like a conventional job for a long time and then now I just get to say or do whatever I want to do and they happen one at a time. I was like, no, I have always cultivated a platform to share the ideas that I wanted to share. For a long time, those were not monetized, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't doing that same kind of work or labor. And so I think that that's also important to say is that I didn't just wake up one day and I was like, oh, you know what? It would be nice to have a podcast and it would be nice to to write a book and it would be nice to be commenting on all these important stories. I was already doing that. Right. <laughs> the emphasis just shifted in how like I always look at my my work as a pie. And I was like, what are the things that I do every day and how much money do those things bring in? So what are the ingredients of the pie? How does, how does your work work? So the ingredients of the pie today are that I do a podcast called Call Your Girlfriend with my friends Ann Friedman and Gina Delvac, who are amazing. And, you know, the podcast is great. It's like we're running a small media company. It runs mostly on advertising and sponsorships. We've been doing it for five years now, which is longer than I've been freelance. Ann and I are also writing a book. Again, we're lucky enough that we got a sizable book advance to do that. And so that, for me... What the book advance was able to do was really take pressure off of all of the other things that I want to do. I was like, oh, I have money to not do anything except to write this book. That's not a thing that I take lightly or for granted. And I also do a lot of branded sponsorships. Not a lot of them, but I do some of them. And that's a part of work that has been, is honestly like very weird. What is a brand sponsorship vis-a-vis you as an individual? Any two brand will tell you different things. But I think that the way that it is supposed to work is that whatever capitalism thing that they're trying to do <laughs> aligns aligns with the values and the things that you talk about, that there is a way that monetarily that can work for both of you. I don't see any of the work that I do with brands as any kind of, you know, I don't see it as feminism. I don't see it as empowering I was like, this is just pure capitalism. And what is that work? Like, are they taking over your Instagram feed? So are you talking so to So it's their different events? things. I've done it in the sense where I hosted a branded podcast for um, State Farm, the insurance company. And that was really fun in that one of the things that I love to talk about is uh, money and how money and power affects women and how we are socialized to not want it or to be ashamed if we want more of it or whatever. And that was a platform that allowed me to do that. And so that, to me, like, that's a win-win scenario, right, is that they get the advertising that they want. They put up the infrastructure for it. But the show is editorially, like, largely guided by what the hosts want to do. And we get to a platform to talk about the things that we want to talk about. I always think about it as, like, how do I get the conversations that I want to have, like, underwritten by people who can afford to pick up the tab, right? And so, so I've done it that way. And then there's also your traditional, like, Sure, I'll do a video for you or take over my Instagram or I'll take over your Instagram. And so that is also... And you've done that as well. Yes. And I've done that with a couple of brands as well. And 
And, you know, I'm still I'm still trying to decide how I feel about that, because when I talk about the podcast that I hosted or or these workshops that I do, I consider that work. I'm like, I actually sit down. I prep there. You know, right. There is an exchange of ideas that is <laughs> happening. And also it doesn't actually involve the brand. The brand sponsors, but it doesn't. You know, they're not uh, they're not a part of giving any kind of editorial feedback. They're not a part of shaping the thing itself. What I don't feel quite so resolved about are these, you know, these like, oh, I'm I'm selling, a, I don't know, like a laxative tea or, a, you know, whatever it is that the celebrities are doing now. I don't quite understand that and how that works and how we as a society, you know, that is a way that people make money. That's truly nuts to me. So percentage wise, how much is each revenue stream giving you? Percentage-wise, yeah. I would say everything is somewhere between 20 and 30%. Nothing is like an overwhelming, like an overwhelming, like, oh, here is here's the thing that pays the bulk of the bills. But if I reverse that formula and I said, what am I spending the bulk of my time on? That's very different, right? And so I don't spend a quarter of my time on all of these things equally. And that's something that I'm always negotiating with myself as well. How do you figure out what's worth it? You know, I, the SpawnCon is so weird. It's so weird. And I, I don't consider it work, like I said. But again, it is a stream of income. That's one where I feel that I'm still figuring it out, right? I never think of that stuff as when it comes to how my financial picture has to look at the end of the year, that that's stuff that I need to do. I was like, it's nice. It allows me to donate as much money as I want to donate. It allows me to support my family how I want to support them and to buy shoes my very dumb, easy formula is it has to be at least a month of rent. I was like, if some, that's, a, that's a unit that is completely arbitrary, but is a money unit that I understand. And I was like, well, if it's a month of rent, you know, and how much work it is, that's pretty easy. But, um, you know, I, I didn't learn this in a business book. But, you know, one of the things about being a 1099 worker, well, that you should probably, a skill that you should hone is knowing how to negotiate for yourself. That's not a thing that scares me. And, you know, like being really clear about, asking for what I want or negotiating or redlining my own contracts or, you know, just figuring it out. I was like, I've been doing that for a while for myself. And I also think that, you know, that the thing that you asked about, like, there are things that you want to do that don't pay you and you still want to do them. That is a thing that I struggle with a lot because probably if I looked at my uh, my ideas journal right now, ideas.biz, the Google Doc I keep about things I want to do, most of the things that I want to do actually, like, do not pay any money, and I still want to do them. Or sometimes there are nonprofits that I want to speak at that I really want to support, or there are, you know, there are just, there are passion projects that I have that I don't, you know, I, I would like to pursue and are not paid. And for me right now, the challenge is like, well, what are the other areas in my life that can overpay me to do something? And figuring that as an offset and really having, having like a procedure around How many of these do I do? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, 
the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. All right, back to my conversation with Aminatou So. Two years ago, Amina discovered she had endometrial cancer. They caught it early, and last year she went into remission. One of the scariest things for an independent worker is that sometimes you don't have access to, say affordable healthcare products that are as good as you might get if you were on staff at a company or the kind of savings that would allow you to not work. Honestly, when I think about the only thing that could send me back into working in an office, it is healthcare. I like I think I have for somebody who works for themselves, have a great healthcare plan. It is not affordable at all. It's almost a thousand dollars a month. The deductible is wild. And also, you don't have as much choice as you think you do. That's the thing that I miss about having an office plan. How did you come to your health care plan? You know, almost on accident. I almost didn't sign up for health care that year because, you know, it's like you sit down and you do the overhead. And I'm like, what? I have to pay. At the time, I think it was $668. And I remember doing that math and being like, oh, really? Like, I'm going to give somebody, you know. I'm just going to do a little bit of oregano oil every once in a while. And I never had a serious illness before. And I think a lot of young people just think this way, where you you look at last year and you're like, well, I didn't get hit by a bus and I did, nothing is wrong. Like, what could go wrong here? How long were you out of work? I was out of work probably six months total, maybe a little longer. And it felt good. At first, I was I was very skeptical about it. When the doctor told me that I had cancer, I remember pulling out my calendar and <laughs> looking at it. I heard her, but I didn't. I was like, this is not going to rattle me. You're like, I can't do that yeah. till June 15th. No, that's literally, I looked at her, I pulled my calendar. I was like, well, okay, so here's the deal. I was like, next week is bad for me. <laughs> the week after I have Wednesdays before 11, I, you know, and very much trying to make it fit into... I was like, I'm going to control this within the bounds of my calendar. If something is in my calendar, it means that it's real. <laughs> and so that's what I was looking at it as. And she, remember she looked at me and was very firm. And she's like, your whole life is about to change. You're like, your whole life is about to change. You're like, you're going through this intense surgery. The recovery time is a minimum of eight weeks. There were all these things. And, and I heard her, but I did not quite understand it. And... But I think about this all the time, too, where if if I had been the kind of stubborn office person that I was, I probably would not have taken as much time as I did to investigate what was wrong with me. But the thing that is very real for me is that even as somebody who my entire identity is defined by how productive I am, when I was in the thick of being sick, I did not think one time about work. I didn't think... I really disappointed this person because they didn't turn in that thing or I didn't show up for here or, oh my God, what will people think of me? I haven't, you know, I haven't shown up to work. I'm doing ginormous air quotes in six months, like zero anxiety about it. And, you know, life is almost back to normal now. All of those things are creeping back in. 
And I really am trying to hold, you know, to hold all of that at bay. Like, I am not my productivity. I think that if anything, when I think about my career journey, LOL, so far, all it is is, you know, it's just being resilient enough that you're open to change. I don't know that I'm going to be doing any of these things in five years, 10 years, 20 years. Who knows? Who knows what work will look like? I just know that the things that have got me far so far are being a curious person who always follows the thread of what you want, being incredibly flexible about what I do, and also being really resilient. That was Aminatu So. She's been able to figure out a meaningful career by pairing work that she wants to do with what she gets paid to do by brands. She calls this work SponCon, and I kind of love that word. It's slang for influencer marketing campaigns. And those campaigns, they can be big business. Entrepreneurs have started all sorts of companies to help brands better reach an influencer's followers. In the last year alone, the number of influencer marketing agencies has nearly doubled. And chances are, if it's being sold on the internet, there's an influencer for it. Caroline brings us this story from the wilds of dog Instagram. Hi, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. I met Lonnie Edwards two years ago. She founded a talent agency for pets called The Dog Agency. Uh, originally, we were just dogs, hence the name. And then we quickly expanded to include cats. And now we have all kinds of specialty pets like pigs and monkeys and hedgehogs. And all of the pets we represent have large followings on social media, mainly Instagram or Facebook. Lonnie didn't start out to become an influencer. She went to Harvard Law School and then started a retail company. Around that time, she got a dog. I stumbled into it because I had put her on Instagram, Chloe the Mini Frenchie, and she quickly amassed this following. Brands started reaching out, pet brands, to send her dog food and do campaigns. And that's kind of when I realized that there was this potential here for pet influencers. Do you remember the moment where you this turned from something like, I just have a dog who happens to have a lot of Instagram followers, to, oh, wait, I could make money on this? So at the beginning, I was just accepting product and doing posts. And then I was seeing what was happening in the human influencer space. And I saw that pets could be what human influencers were, but even better. So they came with all the same benefits. So engagement, being able to vouch for some product or brand or experience, and having that dedicated following. Pet content tends to get higher engagement. Pets are so versatile. They can work with beauty brands. They can work with travel companies. They can work with fashion brands. They can obviously work with pet-focused brands. It's relatable to humans of all ages, genders, locations. They just, pets work for everything. So... How much can really a pet influencer make? Can this be a full-time job for someone to just make money off of their dog or turtle on Instagram? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely can be. So that's tied to the following. But influencers with the millions of followers are around 15K per sponsored post. And they do lots of sponsored posts. So absolutely. But it takes time to get there. Lonnie's dog, Chloe, collected more than 100,000 followers. And that's when brands started to reach out, asking for the dog to rep their hotel, their treats, and more. She realized she could help other pet owners get connected to brands, and she could take a cut. All of a sudden, she was an agent, but for your dog. And that's what you do. You connect some of the brands with the pet influencers that you rep. Where where does your money come from? Yeah, so the bulk of our business is in the brand sponsorship space. So we work with tons of brands, and then we have this group of pet influencers that we exclusively represent. So brands generally come to us and let us know what they're looking to promote. And then we create this detailed proposal. And then we run the campaign from start to finish. And it is a great job. And I'm sure a lot of people look at you and say, oh, I really wish I could do that. 
can everyone do this? Uh, no. So <laughs> creating a pet influencer takes a lot of work. So if you look at successful pet accounts, they have a brand identity. They stay consistent to that. They create quality content. They engage with their followers. And they're spending a lot of time building and nurturing this brand and growing this following. And then from the pet side, the pet has to enjoy it. So not all pets, like posing for photos, creating content, getting dressed up, meeting people, going to photo shoots, going to video shoots. So it's a mix of having a pet that's like down to do it and actually enjoys doing it and a human who's creative and good at brand building and those two things coming together. And then beyond that, being found. Again, that was Lonnie Edwards, founder of The Pet Agency. Next week on the show... There's this myth in Silicon Valley that anyone can land early at a startup and strike it rich. Let's face it, this almost never happens, unless you're this guy. You know, I got lucky. Honestly, I, I was in the right place at the right time I got lucky. That's Charlie Ayers, a chef and Google's 53rd employee. When he retired in 2006, his stock options were worth $40 million. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Tune in next week for more. And if you've got a really great story about working at a startup, send us your voice memo at hellomonday at linkedin.com. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show was mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Riando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. A shout out to our greatest enablers, Margot Brooks and Taylor Hines. Music was by Poddington Bear in Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. Hello Monday is a good name, though. You can be the only thing people look forward to on Mondays. That should be your tagline. The only thing people look forward to on a Monday. <laughs>